All right, if you could read along with me, we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we are going to read verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. We are indeed at a, uh, a unique time of the year. We have just had the season of joy and fun and presence and Grinch and all of the different celebrations that are privy to our culture. Also, those of us who are in Christ and those of us who gather to, to honor Him have had the joy of celebrating the advent of our Savior, uh, the glory of our Lord. Uh, we've been able to gather as family, we've been able to gather as frenemies, we've been able to gather as many different things in order to worship our Savior and His coming. And now we find ourselves not well rested, having stayed up for some odd reason to a time that we normally would not see as fine, but just in order to see some large ball drop in another city, we find ourselves desiring to stay up to a very late hour. And uh, along with this new year, there are also a lot of other cultural things that are quite um, just in, intrinsic to the new year's time, one of which actually Doug had touched on just a few moments ago. This idea of resolutions, all right? Now, if you, if you look up the numbers of, of resolutions, people who claim to do resolutions, it's actually far fewer of us that actually make formal claims to resolve ourselves to doing something this year. And if you look at the numbers of those who actually achieve their resolution in the first six months of the year, the numbers are quite abysmal. It's almost hilarious. And so there's this idea of resolutions, though I wonder if in reality we even truly live it out. But there's this idea that kind of comes along with the new year. And so what I wanted to do today is, as, as my mind has been walking through God's word and what God would say to his people on a day like today, I would want to talk about these questions. What motivates us? What is it that we want to work on? And what are we wanting to grow in? And really, the, the answer to those questions kind of comes down to this idea of resolutions. When you see someone make a resolution, they're showing you something about their heart. They're showing something about what motivates them. We see a, a number of different uh, themes that kind of arise during this time. Uh, whether the origin began of resolutions maybe 4,000 years ago when the Babylonians would worship their God who had two heads, one to look to the future, one to look to the past, or whether it originated more so in John Wesley's time when he was encouraging his local church to make resolutions for their next year to better walk with the Lord, to repent of wasted time, and to plan faithful ways to walk over the next year year. But regardless of the origin, we, we see these themes that kind of rise to the surface when we observe the culture around us, and even within the church, you'll hear a number of uh, themes of resolutions, some of which are blatantly ungodly resolutions. Uh, I know I've, I've heard recently, especially some of these taking center stage, they're, they're, as the wicked will call good what God calls evil, we hear things like, to focus on myself more. To love myself 
better. To be better at cutting off other people from my life who aren't bringing me joy. These are just blatantly ungodly, unbiblical resolutions that have kind of taken center stage. But there are also quite a few that seem very noble. Some of which would be people want to eat better. People want to exercise more. Potentially look better. Handle money better. Or even care for their loved ones better. Now, while these are seemingly noble desires, there is nothing intrinsic within them that's actually God-honoring. And so whenever I, I think about this idea of resolutions, one particular person from church history kind of comes to mind, and that's a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Now, for those of you in the room, if you could just give me a little wiggle or a nod of your head or a raise of your hand, have you heard of Jonathan Edwards? This is a person that we're familiar with. Well, let me give you a wee bit of background. He was called to be a pastor at the very aged age of 18 years old. He was called to move to the booming city of New York City, which at the time had about 10,000 people. The church he was called to uh, pastor was actually enduring a very difficult and intimately painful church split. And as this young minister feared the Lord that he knew he was not God's gift to this church, he decided that over the ages of 17 through 19, he was going to write out 70 resolutions. These 70 resolutions were written by a 17 to 19 year old pastor. And when you read through them, you'll find that not a single resolution was made just of his own imagination. Rather, as you read them, you'll find that they are the exact things that the Lord calls all believers to do in Scripture. They're an impressive list, especially coming from a 17-year-old. Edwards lived according to these resolutions, really with an unwavering resolve. He had a very other-centered and loving-kindness that, that followed all throughout his life in ministry. He had a deep humility, as is expressed even in his resolutions. And he had a life quite filled with repentance. These resolutions were indeed a good gift to him and his walk with the Lord. But it wasn't simply that resolutions in of themselves are God-honoring. There was something else at the heart of it. There was another man at about that same time, in 1726, a young man by the name of Benjamin Franklin. He also took to writing a group of resolutions. On his way back home to, from, to Philadelphia after his first visit to France, he decided that he would make a list of resolutions, and let me say, they do not uh, maybe measure up to that of the young Jonathan Edwards. We actually see the heart and, and really the core focus of why Benjamin Franklin was writing these resolutions at about the third resolution. His real goal kind of comes into view. And let me simply read what he wrote. Resolution number three, to apply myself industriously to whatever business I take in hand and not divert my mind from my business by any foolish project of growing suddenly rich. For industry and patience are the surest means of plenty. Our modern language, no 
get-rich-quick schemes. Work hard and don't stop. That's how I will get rich. Now, his single-mindedness and patience are quite commendable, and yet at the end of the day, young Franklin's goal was merely to arrive at plenty. He wanted prosperity of a very worldly fashion. Many resolutions thus end up really simply being another form of this self-glorifying, self-sanctification, being conformed more to the image that I would really wish I could look like. That image is often, though, painted by my own desires. It shouldn't surprise us that as different as the world may seem to be, very little has actually changed from their time to ours. The heart of man has not changed even a tiny bit. What's even more humbling, though, when we look at Jonathan Edwards and what he did, what's even more humbling than such a a young man writing with such passion and conviction of the glory of the Lord, his motivation, in fact, can be seen as well from his resolutions. Edwards expresses his motivation for writing these resolutions in his preface And in his very first resolution, let me read to you both. His preface reads simply, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. Therefore, resolution one reads, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. You see, what made a difference between Benjamin Franklin, an industrious man, And Jonathan Edwards, a godly man, was not that they had a heart of dedication towards getting better. It was who they worshipped and who they sought to be more like. Jonathan directed his resolutions toward plugging every gap that would allow distraction from what he saw as his only worthy activity to glorify God. You see, he saw the irony in seeking self-fulfillment. That when doing so, one actually, in the words of Christ, loses his life. Yet by seeking the glory of God, in the words of Jesus, one finds life abundantly. So, let me ask you this. What if this year we were to be a people who were truly resolved. A a people who made resolutions not for the sake of bettering ourselves, but because we've been called to be doing things to honor another. A people who look to the Word of God and say, Lord, what is it that you would have me do with all my might, with all my focus, For the whole of my duration, the whole of my life. And there is a passage, in fact many, 
that may tell us the answer to that very question. Lord, what would you have me do? And so we turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.1 to see what is God's will for my next year? What ought to be the goal of what I resolve myself to do this year? 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally, then, Paul's turning a corner. In his typical Pauline fashion, he has told the Thessalonians that which is true, and now he is turning his attention to say, and now you. He's laid out the beautiful doctrines of his love for them, and he turns to them and says, and now here's what you've got to do. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. The idea of ask and urge. It's actually quite impressive the fact that he worded it that way. For there are other examples in Scripture when he's writing to people and he doesn't ask and he doesn't urge. Rather, he commands and he rebukes, wielding his authority over them for their good. But here, we see Paul as almost a father coming to these Thessalonians as we see him do in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, when he says, You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you know what a father should be? There it was. Paul comes to these people and as a loving request, he asks, almost as an equal. And yet, there is an urgency of authority. And thus, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. Paul entreats and he exhorts. Paul requests commands. Well, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. What does he mean by this? It means simply that he is not his own authority. When Paul comes to the Thessalonians, he comes in the Lord Jesus, meaning he as a messenger speaks not his own message. When we pray in Jesus' name, What we are actually saying is Jesus has prayed this prayer. We are saying as if a messenger has been sent from a king and he proclaims the very message of that king, so it is that I proclaim the message that I've heard from Christ. And so when I pray in Jesus' name, it's not a fancy way to get what I'm praying for. It's me saying, no, I know your promises, I've read your word, and this is what you claim you want. And so just as my Christ would pray, so I come to you. And Paul does the same thing. With the same authority. By whose authority does, we, does he speak? We see in chapter 2 of Thessalonians in verses 4 and 6. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He even later on in that very verse says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he comes to these Thessalonians and he does not come with some helpful opinions. 
He comes with the very Word of God, spoken by the very God, Christ Jesus. We see in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, as he's commending the the Thessalonians for the way that they received him and his teaching, he says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Perhaps most clearly we'll see actually towards the end of this very pericope that we're entering in in chapter, in chapter 4 verse 1. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. Turn in your Bible and read this. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man. But God who gives The Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit to you. So Paul comes to them. And he's got some application now for them. He knows these people and he's written a very brief letter of encouragement. And now he says, but there's something more for you to be doing. And I don't come just wielding a sword of do better, do better, do better. But I am going to come and ask you and urge you with someone else's authority. Because this comes from God and God alone. Well, he says this, that as you received from us. So, what is he referring to there? Paul is bringing counsel to these people, but he's actually assuming they've already heard it. He's not assuming he's bringing anything new to them, but rather he's actually saying, this is something I'm going to encourage you to do that I've already told you about. That I've already had to make known to you very clearly. We see this come to fruition in verse 2, where he says this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You see, what he's doing is he's going to exhort them, encourage them, urge them, and ask them to do what Christ has, has the authority to ask them to do. And it's already what he's already taught them. He's coming to them with some very specific things in mind. Some very specific application about what it's going to look like for the Thessalonians, those who received the word of God amidst suffering with joy and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some of the most God-honoring and teachable people Paul has ever worked with. People worthy of, of almost blasphemous encouragements. As he prays for these people, he says, You are my very joy and crown. He's going to ask them to do something. But he's got something in mind. It's instruction that he's already given under the authority of Christ himself. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, how? How you ought to walk. Now let's piece this through real quick. How you ought to walk. Interesting part of the Greek When you look at the word how, it's actually got what's called an article in front of it. Meaning, when you literally translate it, it doesn't say how you ought to walk. It's that you receive from us the how you ought to walk. He's not giving some general follow my example command. He's saying, no, I've written to you the explicit and exact 
ways. The how that you're to walk. I've written you the how you ought to live. I've written you the how of what you are to do. He talks of of specific things. He's going to give an example of this in verses 3 through 7. And some of the example that he's going to give is simply this. Don't have sexual immorality in your life. The other one is learning to control the entire self rather than living as a practical atheist. He labels it as the Gentiles who do not know God. He gives the example of not sinning against a brother in Christ. He's got specific instructions that he has already taught them by the authority of God that he's going to call them to. And these are things that they've already heard. These are things that they already know. But you see what we find is that he does not merely teach in word alone. Rather, he teaches in both word and deed, giving them both doctrine. We see in chapter 1, verses 9, he tells them that he is commending them for that which they have already done, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's taught them doctrine to follow. And he also gives them an example of himself for them to follow. We see this in chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is going to exhort the Thessalonians to doing something, and it's what they've seen and received from him. Very specific doctrine and a general example of his own self. So let me put before you kind of my first point, if you will, of this text. There is an answer of what God's will for your next year is. And let me just say, the standard for knowing what that is, is not my feelings. It's not what I think I ought to do. It's not a liver quiver of excitement that I ought to follow. There is no self-standardized sanctification. Do you want to know what the will for the Lord is for your next year? There's an answer. There is, in fact, a the how we ought to walk. God gets to decide what it looks like for me to walk pleasing to Him. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, we find out, For you know what instructions I gave you. And he fast forward down to verse 8. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Do you want to know what your next year ought to look like? Do you want to know what you ought to resolve to? Who's leading the conversation? Is it who I ought to be for me? Or is it saying, what does God say? What says the word? Well, let's look at this word ought to walk or these words ought to walk. 
it, Paul actually tilts his hand a, a wee bit here. The, the word ought is also translated bind, imprison, compel, and constrain. He actually uses a, a bit of a, a, a tough word here. For Paul, this is not an option for believers to do. This is not an option for the Thessalonians to do. Rather, he says, I have taught you the how of how you are bound to walk. I have taught you the how of how you are imprisoned to walk. Holiness and sanctification is not just a good option for those who want to follow Jesus to choose. It is the inevitable and certain fruit of saving faith in Jesus Christ. To be freed from the chains of sin is to be bound by the chains of righteousness. Those who are in Christ are now bound to Christ. The inevitable product of being freed is living in freedom. To walk. What is that which I'm bound to do then? To walk, he says. The, the literal word just means walk. It's used in narratives to say Jesus walked there. Jesus walked there. The idea is simply to live. Righteousness lived out is not seen in momentary glances. It's seen on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Righteousness that we've received from Christ is not merely the righteousness that he bought at the cross. It was the very righteousness that was bought by him when he was a young man and he was bullied and he did not respond in kind. The righteousness received by by us from Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God, the perfect man, who did not merely die perfect, but lived perfect. We received his righteousness on Calvary, and His righteousness of every single Wednesday He lived through. We are not called to make a one-time decision. We are called to live a life of faith and obedience day in and day out in the Lord who lived an entire daily life in sheer and utter perfection. Paul's not going to call them to be superstars. He's going to be, call them to be bound to who they say they're bound to. To walk with who they say they walk with. To live for who they say is their life. What is such mind-blowing supernatural counsel? If you're looking for something practical, what does it look like when he says this idea of walk? Is there an example that we could look in, even in 1 Thessalonians, to say, what are you meaning that I am bound to walk in a certain way? He gives a great example in in chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 18, Paul gives very practical counsel of what it means to please God. In verse 9, love those who are in Christ the way God has loved you. Mind-blowing, I know. Life-changing counsel. See, the problem is that's not done once, is it? 
Verse 11 of chapter 4 says, We are not called to be quick to quarrel. Instead, submitting to governmental authorities and the, the powers at work in obedience. And to work hard to bring tangible benefit to the godless community in which we find ourselves. The Thessalonians were a people in a very wicked place. And what are they called to do? Called to live quietly and bring benefit to those around them. There's this idea of humble submission. In verse 12, we find out that they are to live in such a kind and honorable way that even unbelievers can't find them grating or offensive. That kind of goes against some of what we might naturally see as beneficial, isn't it? You say we see, we, we say that we need to be a light in a dark place, but we end up just being a fire in a dry forest and destroy everything in our path. Because we thought burning everything down was better than it being in the dark. But but Paul gives different counsel. The light is in how we walk, not in how we cut others. In verses 13 and 18, he calls us to think of death in a biblical way so that we can use death as an opportunity to share the gospel and to encourage those who are enduring suffering to God's glory. Paul's counsel is actually really quite simple. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us the how how you ought to walk and please God. Well, what does this mean? Here is the center of the heart of Paul. This is the center of what he is calling the Thessalonians to be changed by. We are no longer called now to live for ourselves. Actually, by Christ's death and resurrection, we are now free to live to please Him. Why would the Thessalonians need to live in a certain way? Because they know God's revealed will. You who search for God's will for your life, search no further. It's seen right here actually in chapter 4 verse 3 when Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Why are they called to live in a certain way? Because there is a revealed will of God. It's that they would be conformed more to the image of the Son. That they would be set apart, sanctified. That they would live to please Him. Well, how do we do this? How do do we live to please God? There are two ways that we can see in 1 Thessalonians and two ways that we can see all throughout the rest of the Bible. We see, first of all, that one way is through faith. And here's what I mean. In Romans 8.8, Paul tells us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. With no faith, no good work is worth a thing. You can be the most generous, most kind, most loving, most affectionate human being, and God sees it all as sin when it's not to his glory. I give an example to my youth at times. An unbeliever playing ball with his son is sin in the eyes of God. Proverbs tells us that the plowing of the ungodly is sin. Meaning him doing beneficial, profitable, good, and enjoyable things. Oh, faith is essential. You see, 
A resolution simply for my own sanctification to my own image is merely me getting prettier at worshiping myself. We see this also in chapter 1, verse 3. When Paul is commending the Thessalonians, one of the things he commends them for is your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul says is, you are not like that. You are not like those who do good works having absolutely no glory of God in mind. You, rather, are doing this out of a hope and a love and a faith in Christ. And therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus are found pleasing to God. They've brought no righteousness for themselves. And so they've found open arms of God the Father through the one and only way. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father save through me, says Christ. So faith is one way to walk in a manner that pleases God. Would you like to please God? You need to be in Christ. And until you are, there is not a single thing you do for his benefit or joy. Well, there's more though, isn't there? You see, Paul is not just encouraging them, well, trust in Jesus, you're good, you're done. No, rather, actually, he says, finally then, brothers. Meaning there's actually something that I'm now called to do. In living out and through this faith, I'm called to obedience. We saw that in verse 3. What's the will of God for my life? Your sanctification. We see in chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, Paul tells, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Meaning there is a way to disregard God. And it's simply this. Not accepting His word for His word not living in the holiness and impurity or, or and purity to which he calls us. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Sanctification is not an option for those who really like Jesus. Holiness is not an option only for those who teach and preach in a church. This is the will of God for anyone in Christ Jesus. Would you like to know the will of God for your next year? It's your sanctification. Either in faith for those who are not in Christ or in obedience for those who are. Just as you are doing. Here here is where I just fall in love with Thessalonians. This is one of the most encouraging and sweet books you'll ever read. If dudes get uncomfortable with saying loving things to one another, they're not thinking biblically because Paul pours sweet honey to his friends because he says this, just as you are doing. Earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 and 9, he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
He's pouring out love to these people. They've been doing a great and faithful job. They've been doing a wonderful job, in fact. He's saying, just as you've been doing, walking bound to Christ, pleasing not yourself but the Lord God, living according to this will of God, your sanctification, in the same way, just as you've been doing, he encourages them. He reminds them of what's true with a rebuke of a truly loving believer. There's always encouragement and there's always need for change. There's always encouragement and there's always need for change. And when we begin to let either one of those slide, we don't get Christianity. We get abuse and license. So, we see almost a a godly discontentment here encouraged. And I say godly discontentment quite honestly as, as what I intend it to be. There is a genuine discontentment that we can see here because Paul just encouraged the Thessalonians that they are already doing what he's about to tell them to do. Now, hang on a second. If they're already doing what he's about to tell them they need to do, why is there a need for them to do something? Because they're not done yet. There is a godly discontentment that grows from the reality that Christ's work is over at a certain time and not a moment before then. We read of this time in Philippians 1, 6 when Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the Thessalonians have been doing a great job. They've received the word as if it was what it was, God's word. They've lived in this faithful obedience, pouring out love to all around, so much so that he doesn't even have to claim them when he goes to new churches because the other churches have already heard of that church and they've already heard that Paul was the one who was there. Their their reputation precedes them. These are the titans of faithfulness and he still says that's not good enough. They're not done. Jonathan Edwards, back to his resolutions, he gives two very interesting resolutions. You find it in number 41, he says this, Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, every week, every month, and every year, wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better. He has a godly discontentment. As faithful as he's been walking for as long as he's been faithfully walking, it's still not enough to close his eyes, to cross his hands, and take a bit of rest. There's more, he knows. There's still more that he can do. Resolution 56, he says, Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Oh, it will be hard, he says, I know. Though I will never relent a moment. Because he had a godly discontentment. He had a desire to know his Savior still more. 
to be conformed to the image of his Savior more and more. You see, what Paul is doing here is not telling them, well done, good and faithful. Come into my rest. He says, instead, as a dad cheering his kid along in a race, you've done great, keep going. You're not done yet. There's a moment when Paul changes his tune, and it's found in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, a moment when Paul ceases to have a godly discontentment. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. There's a day to be done. There's a day to say, it's over. And that day, by God's grace, for those of us here, has not yet come. For the Thessalonians, it is not there because of what He says to follow. Just as you are doing, that you do so More and more. The words for more and more, ironically, are aboundingly and especially. It's like taking the cap off and letting it go into infinity that way and zooming in and letting it go into infinitely close. It's grand and specific. It's large and it's minor. He covers every single thing with those more and more, aboundingly and especially. He's saying, you're doing great, and you can do more. You're doing great, and you can do better. Matt Smethurst, a man that if you are going to be doing the First Thessalonians study, which I would commend to you, it's one, it's my, one of my favorite books and such an encouraging book. Matt Smethurst writes, a Christian is someone who reads this passage, And here's a fountain of exhortation without a drop of condemnation. This is not a heavy-handed, you are failing, O Galatians. This is, you are doing so great. And the finish line is still ahead. Do more. And more. And more. Chapter 5, verses 23 gives us a bit of a, an encouragement. In case those of us who are seeking to be faithful are possibly growing weary of faithfulness. Paul is going to tell the, the Thessalonians in chapter 5 verse 14 what to do with those who are weak. What to do with those who are undisciplined or unruly. And what to do with those who are faint-hearted. For those who are faint-hearted, he says this, encourage the faint-hearted. Let me put some courage into those of you who have been seeking to be faithful for a long time, have been faithful for quite a while, and are growing tired. Chapter 5, verses 23 through 24 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, at this point, I want to recall with you that Jonathan Edwards did not make Jonathan Edwards. John Piper, excellent example of a man who loves the Lord with joy. And he did not make John Piper. Paul did not make Paul. Rather, what do we see? That this is God who will do the work in you. Edwards didn't make Jonathan Edwards, no matter how good he was at making or keeping resolutions. God made Jonathan Edwards into Jonathan Edwards through the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. I, I call your mind back to Jonathan Edwards' humble preface. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable him to keep these resolutions. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this. Therefore, as Paul is writing to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But don't stop there. Because there is encouragement in the next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For those of you who have been walking faithfully, that was because God has been at work in you. You've not been walking in your own strength and in your own glory and in your own self-obedience. This is a work of God as He renews the heart of man. And so Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how, to walk, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now the way I see it, there are about two different hearts that could hear this message. Two different ways of hearing it. Let me give a brief example of the two hearts. A car pulls up to a large mansion and in it are two orphans who have been brought to the house for two very different reasons. One of the orphans was actually adopted as a son and the adopted child exits the car before it comes to a full stop, leaving his pitiable possessions sprawled out on the driveway as he looks in wonder at the mountain of stairs leading to the front door. In this immense house that he now gets to be a child in which is living. But the servant steps out begrudgingly. He counts out the number of steps to this giant house that he will have to heave his luggage up and his legs are already weary and he's already annoyed. He looks for the nearest opportunity to go no further. They're met by a kindly guide who's there who's going to help them get a knowledge of the palace grounds. 
The joyful young orphan, the adopted orphan, opens the door with all of his strength, nearly knocking over this guide, excited to see what might be waiting for him there. But there's a second young orphan who's been hired as a servant. The servant doesn't want to see an inch more of this place than he has to. The idea that the guide may force him to go further fills his legs with lead and his heart with frustrations. The guide winds them through the endless caverns and hallways of the mansion with a smile, putting his hand on their back every single room saying, but don't stop, wait, don't wait here, there is more. The heart of the young son sings with every new room. The heart of the young servant soars with every inclination to move forward. The luggage he carries with himself begins to be heavy. And he realizes that he cannot carry everything that he loves and owns continually through this walk. If he is to continue to walk in this beautiful mansion. And so his fingers begin to slip on his belongings as the very things he loves and treasures start to fall and his heart hates the owner of such a vast house that won't let him just sit and enjoy his loves on the floor. With every room, he hears the guide's joyful words, but don't stop, there's more. Further up, further in you go, more and more, There still is. Finally, they find themselves at the very end of the tour. The mansion has been explored, and there stand only two doors. The cheerful face of the guide tells the two that they are done in this mansion. And it's time to move on to what was waiting on the other side. The son, getting to know his father's home is filled with joy. The son getting to see his inheritance come to life is filled with longing to search deeper and deeper. The slave will have a heart that this is just another job to take him away from where he really wants to be. For a son looks up at the heights from which the stairs will lead him. The slave counts the steps and doesn't think the view much worth anything. There are two hearts that can receive a message of Paul's here. The heart of a son. One who realizes that when God says, you are doing good, but don't stop, you can do better. There is still so much more. Go further, go higher, go harder. Never cease as you grow weary of pursuing and growing in Christ. When a son hears that, they hear the call of a father for their good. Saying the race is not done. You're doing great. Keep going. But those with the heart of a slave. Sanctification is just labor. Letting go of my gods is a bitter pain. 
Why won't he just let me be me and live for me? There's two hearts we could have at Paul's exhortation. Those who believe that what God says is true realize that living for myself is a sure way to lose all joy and all delight in this life and the next. You see, Christ has rescued me from having to live in selfish ambition and for my own vainglory. He has freed me from having to get angry that every single time I go to Sonic, they get my ice cream order wrong. Every time. Because I don't have to live for me. I don't have to live for my pleasures and my delights anymore. Therefore, I can be overjoyed that the Lord has given me the opportunity to have an ice cream at all and a wife who wants some too. I don't have to have my world crumble as my kid throws up in my hands for the eighth time today because he has come so that I don't have to care how my day is going. He has come that rather now I get to live, to serve and love these sinners all around me in the same way that he's already loved me. Oh, freedom is found in the call of Paul. Freedom this is indeed. Freedom it is in seeing His truth that has set me free. It was for freedom we have been set free and the Son in Christ is free. So Paul tells me. So Paul tells you. So Paul tells us that as you have walked to please the Lord in your life, do so even more. Oh Thessalonians, you've done well. You can do more. And you can do better. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I began today with a question. A question that merely said this, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do with all my might and all of my focus for the whole of my duration, for the whole of my life? What is the Lord's will for your life this year? What in the midst of a scary and changing world are you called to do? What are we to resolve ourselves to no matter how far we have come or how far away we are in our walk with the Lord? Well, let me simply summarize Paul's command. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as you are doing in seeking to please God in all that you do, that you do so more and more. That as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Oh, for a life to please my God in every little thing. A holy life that day by day to Him will glory bring. To live life lived only unto Him. No double aim in view. The outcome of a Christ-like heart by God made pure and new. 
A life which Jesus guides alone, over which he has control. A life which others seeing say that Jesus owns the whole. Jesus, complete thy work in me, the work thou hast begun. Each day may I grow more like thee until my race is run. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, that you tell us what you call us to this year. Lord, that our resolutions don't have to be for our betterment, that they don't have to be centered on us. They don't have to be for our own form of sanctification, for our own self-improvement. Lord, I thank you that for those who love you, we can gain our lives because we can lose them, because they've been lost when we died and were buried with you. Now, Lord, as we live for you, as we seek to please and honor you according to faith and obedience, would you work in us that which you say you will do? For you say that our endeavors are not our own. Rather, they are the very work that you do in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, would you take Rocky Point Baptist Church? Would you take the hearts of us today and would you resolve us would we resolve ourselves to living not this year for our own glory our own pleasure our own delight or our own ease but lord would you give our hearts and would you pull our hearts would you exhort urge and ask our hearts to as We are called to please you to never cease, never slow, and never grow weary. Lord God, would you draw us to sanctification, conforming to the image of Christ Jesus, the image that he has already bought for us, that he has already claimed of us, and that you now work in us, through the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. Lord God, we pray that this year at Rocky Point would be a year to your glory. It would be a year of resolved people living not for themselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Lord, we pray these things, believing them to be as you would reveal your desires in the word of God, and therefore we pray them in your name.